Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. It is Sunday the 9th of October 2022 and joining me as always is my co-host Sam. Hey Sam, it is a very special weekend indeed because our little podcast turns two years old officially. So are you ready for the terrible twos as they say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, happy happy birthday to the podcast from from both of us. I know it's the 12th of October, I think, was the time we actually put our very first episode into the world. Um, the House, the Veeps and the Kiwis, I think it was called, covering New Zealand's election and looking ahead to the 2020 presidential election. And um, funnily enough, Chern, this morning, I went back and listened to the very start of it. And I I like to think that our podcast recording skills have slightly improved since since then. But it was really nice to look back on um, on that episode. And here we are, 93 episodes in, two special episodes, and we've covered 54 countries. And um, there's many more to come, I'm sure. Well, there will be more countries to cover if a few more of them decided to have a bit more of a democratic election. We have been, have been cherry-picking a bit, but uh, then again, we have Bulgaria, who has gone four times since we started two years ago. So I suppose, you know, and snap elections keep coming and getting called. So we have been kept busy over the last two years. And uh, thank you for all those countries with no fixed terms, because that's provided us lots of entertainment, hasn't it? It has indeed. In fact, I mean, one of the one of the countries I don't think we expected to be on our schedule for the next few months. Denmark has been recently this week added to the schedule, so we'll be covering that snap election um coming up. But what are we covering today, Chern? Actually, let's just take a little back because apart from celebrating the fact it is two years old, today on the 9th of October is actually quite a significant day, particularly in the politics of one of the countries in which we have talked a lot about over the last two years. Because today is a 10-year anniversary of former Prime Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard's infamous misogyny speech, where in the Australian Parliament, a debate against the then opposition leader Tony Abbott, she proclaimed that I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And she later went on to proclaim, not now, not ever. And I think that Certainly, it's a speech 10 years ago. It has still remained a huge cultural impact. Certainly, if you go on TikTok, for example, some of the memes and some of the videos, you know, still memorializing certain parts of the speech lives on, which I don't think when she gave that speech, who would have thought about the cultural impact that that had? So, Sam, what is your reaction to that speech and the cultural impact I've been implying that this speech has had for you? Yeah, I mean, it is it is impressive the the reach this speech has managed to have. I've watched it several times myself. Um, well, I guess an, another way of looking at this is we've just had an Australian general election earlier this year, in which one of the key issues for particularly the governing party was the depth of sexual harassment allegations that existed within the party. So. You, you do look at that speech 10 years ago and think perhaps things haven't moved as as significantly as Julia Gillard certainly would have hoped um, 10 years ago when that speech was made. But I, I did find that parallel particularly interesting. Yeah, I think overall, hopefully, the experience for Australia's next female prime minister will be an easier one than she had to go. I think one thing that we should say is that Although this speech, I think, resonated with a lot of women in particular, 
I think what was slightly lost is the context in which the speech was given. And the context was that Julia Gillard was trying to defend the speaker. Don't forget, this was a hung parliament in Australia, so every vote counted. And in late 2011, Julia Gillard managed to install the deputy speaker, which was a liberal, into the speaker's chair. So the opposition was down one vote. But it soon emerged that Peter Slipper, who was the speaker at that time, a series of quite crude text messages came out where he described female genitalia as looking like a muscle removed from its shell to one of its to one of the staffers, James Ashby. And Julia Gillard was this was this was a debate in which was defending the speakers and whether the speaker should be removed. So I think it is like ironic, ironic in my opinion, that it is a speech, you know, calling out sexism and misogyny when the main person is been accused of sexism and misogyny and Julia Gillard was defending that. So I think that has been slightly lost, but I do not think what has been lost is the fact that this was a probably with the debate that preceded, which is Tony Abbott's speech, was a culmination of two years of Julia Gillard's frustration and of the sexism and misogyny spilling out and the brutal way in which she delivered that, I think certainly is why it resonated over time. Anyway, Whilst, whilst that has been nice for us to reminisce not only on the last two years and over the last 10 years, this week's episode will look back at last weekend's bumper crop in elections. And for this episode, we have decided to focus on two of them, although you can find all four on our Twitter page at Bella underscore Tour. In the moment, we will talk all things Latvia. But first, Sam, it was the expected outcome, wasn't it? A landslide victory for Quebec Premier Francois Legault. It was indeed. I mean, on Monday, Quebec went to the polls to elect all 125 seats in its National Assembly, with 63 seats required for a majority. Well, Premier Francois Legault's Coalition Avenir Quebec actually won 90 seats of those 125, um, which is an increase of 14 on the election in 2018, with 41% of the vote. The Liberal Party, led by Dominique Anglard, retained its official opposition status despite losing six seats down to 21, with just 14.4% of the vote, which was a drop of 10% on their performance uh, four years ago. Third place, we had Quebec Solidaire with 11 seats, which was actually a gain of one. And Parti Quebecois, another um, Quebec separatist party, um, actually lost half of its representation in the National Assembly, down to just three seats. And the Conservative Party, which is the one that dominated our discussion when we were previewing this election a few weeks ago, actually failed to win any seats, losing the one seat they had in the National Assembly going into this election. And all party leaders across the board that were recontesting their seats did retain them. However, Eric Duhamel, the Conservative leader, failed to win his seat of Chauveau and ensured that the Conservative Party are, as I said, an extra parliamentary force in this election, despite winning 13% of the vote. So, Chern, initial reactions to those results? Um, I think the headline results are not surprising. Uh, Philip J. Fournier was on Twitter, did do a, project, a prediction, which actually turned out to be fairly accurate. I think, honestly, compared to the polls, I thought the CAQ might have done a little bit better. And the Liberals had done a little bit worse because in terms of seats, Sam, the Liberals were miles in front in terms of getting the second place. But in terms of votes, and I think this is a good place to start, the Liberals, as you say, got 
Quebec Solidaire, even though they got 15.4%, so it's one percentage more, have 11 seats, so about half of that. And the Parti Quebecois, who got 0.2% more of the vote, got three seats compared to the Liberals' 21. So, I I mean, we knew this was a deficiencies of first-past-the-post in the fact that particularly if the vote is split very evenly, you could see odd results in terms of the ability of votes to be translated into seats. But this must be on the extreme end, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, to be honest, I think this is just testament to the fact that in Quebec, when the Liberals are not doing particularly well, their vote is still incredibly efficient because of how strong they are in Montreal. And that is where pretty much all of their seats came from. And they did lose a seat in Montreal to Quebec Solidaire, which was a big result for Quebec Solidaire, the seat of Verdun, which has been held by the Liberals since the 1940s. But regardless, because of the Liberals' relative strength in Montreal and the fact they rack up their votes there, they were mani- they were able to retain official opposition status despite, across the board, having, I-, I think, what can only be described as an absolute disastrous result for the Liberals in Quebec. Because, as we stated last time, the Liberals have been a historically dominant party in Quebec in terms of um, state elections, alternating power with the Parti Québécois. And this time, they have the lowest vote share they have ever had in Quebec and have barely retained the um, official opposition status in in the grand scheme of things compared to the 90 seats that are now held by the governing coalition Avenir Quebec. So... Yeah, I think it's to do with the efficiency of their vote, why we've ended up in this situation. I mean, just even more some long-term... You you talked about Verdun, uh, which has been held by the Liberals since 1940, just to back their up, the seat of Hull. Since 1981, they've, they've held that seat. Jean Talon has been held by the CACs, the Coalition Avenue Quebec, since a 2019 by-election. It was Liberal since its creation in 1966. For context, that's the last year in which England won the World Cup. And La Porta since 1981. So these are not your marginal seats that are falling. These are long-term seats. And I think the best way to look at it is just look at the the city of Laval, which if you look at Montreal, the island of Montreal is just north to the island of Montreal. Well, in the last election, the Liberals held five out of the six seats there coming into the election. Now, they only hold two. And the Coalition Avenue Quebec has gone from one seat previously to four. So And why? It is because the Liberals' support among Francophones, which, let's be honest, is the majority of the province of Quebec, completely collapsed. And as a result, you're only left with ethnic minorities and Anglophones, which, which the Liberal saving grace is all, as you said, concentrated on the island of Montreal, which is why they've been able to retain those seats. Mm. I just had a quick question for you, Chen, before we dive into some of the other parties more specifically. Do you think this election says uh, talks about the popularity of Legault and Coalition Avenir Quebec, or does it speak more about the deficiencies of the challenges to the throne? I think that's a very good question. I think it's more to do in my case, I think it's a mixture of both. And in Dominic Englart's fairness is that she was elected in May 2020, right when the start of the COVID pandemic hit. And I think, as we know, Sam, particularly in those initial months when 
as a new opposition leader is usually when you can get a lot of media attention. There frankly was none media attention on her because everyone was focused on the impending COVID pandemic. So I think that was a problem. But nonetheless, I think the liberals themselves have fundamentally been disadvantaged as the contours of Quebec politics have fundamentally changed in a sense that the liberals were able to function because they had a strong party Quebecois. When there was no strong party Quebecois, the liberals themselves suffered. And I, and I don't think that they were able to hold that, co- that coalition, that voter block of francophones who are much more comfortable with remaining in Canada, within the uh, Federation of Canada, and were not comfortable with, with the province of, with, set with independence, but they, were, uh, they want more rights for Quebec. And then suddenly you had Francois Legault come along, a former PQ minister, one who advocated Quebec nationalism, but not independence. And I think that is key, is that he, he was able to promote, the, to eschew the traditional debate of independence and sovereignty in favor of nationalism and strengthening the French language and position his party similar in a way, ironically, similar to the Bloc Québécois, in, in other words, center right on economics and public finance, but still crucially, still wanting investments in public education and health. And that's where I think the median francophone voter is. So I think it's a combination of both. The liberals, in their own failure to adapt to the changing dynamics of uh, the disappearance of that sovereignty versus uh, remaining part of Canada cleavage, but also Francois Legault skillfully, in my opinion, being able to scoop up that crucial portion of the median voter, which usually which formed part of the of the liberal base previously, what do you think, Sam? No, I I completely agree with you, and I think there's a wider point here to be made about the fact that if you were a voter in this election who was of the centre or of the centre left and felt uncomfortable with voting for the Coalition Avenue Quebec because of perhaps Francois Legault's comments or policies on immigration for for as one example you you were kind of unsure on where to go because you had the Liberal Party in Quebec Solidaire sort of presenting two sides of the same um center left coin which is whereas Quebec Solidaire was more on the side of um sovereignty but they still were sharing the the, the centre-left, left-wing social and economic policies of the Liberal Party. And then you also had on the other side um, the, the more right-wing conservative option. And then you also had Parti Québécois, which sort of float in the middle as well, but um, tend to be more extreme on um, sovereignty. So if you weren't going to vote for Coalition Avenue of Quebec, I think the vote naturally splinters into left-right and then left-right sovereignty left, right, economic and social issues. So it splintered down into too many different parties and it gave, as we said a couple of weeks ago, Coalition Avenue Quebec a a monopoly on seats because they were the ones who had the biggest sizable minority of of vote capture. And and it also reminded me, Sans, when we talked about Italy, this failure of opposition parties to coordinate because Francois Legault has got increased majority only about 40% of the vote. And that is because when, as you said, because the cleavage is then split not on the economic scale, but also on the sovereignty scale amongst the opposition, there are just way too many divisions for them to efficiently coordinate to oust the CAC in so many seats, I would argue, particularly in those Laval seats that I was talking about. And as you know, Sam, in the priority system, just coming first is good enough as well. I think the Liberals also themselves suffered is that 
this election was a foregone conclusion for many months. You know, the, the CAQ has long been leading in the polls. So if you're an Anglophone voter, what would you do then? Because you would have seen how the CAQ behaves in the leadership election. You know, when you saw about Toyam talking about how they view immigrants, immigration, for example, and the poor treatment of Anglophones, in particular, as we discussed earlier, in relation to Bill C-96. I have a very good example here of the seat of Darcy McGee, which is a long-term liberal seat in the west of Montreal. And I can tell you, it is very clear to me that, yes, the liberal vote declined in percentage. I mean, when in 2014, when the liberals last were in government, they got 92% of the vote. Now, they got 51% of the vote. So that's a huge fall in one of its safe seats. But I think what's even more telling story, Sam, is turnout, which dropped from 72% to just 47%. So to me, it seems that the liberals suffered not only because not only is the Liberals fell in the vote shares because they lost francophones, but a significant portion of their base seeing these results just didn't bother turning out at all. And I think this could be evident in the safe seats because in that election, 2014, they got just under 27,000 votes. Now, today in 2022, only 13,000. So it suggests not only did they lose francophones, but a significant number of the anglophones just bothered to stay home. Yeah, and I, I think that is something that does tend to happen internationally in elections that seem to be foregone conclusions, because you almost think, well, what's the point in me turning out to to vote if if my party, it might win my seat, but it's not going to challenge for government. So those, those low salience voters um, just don't f- have the energy to, to participate in this election. And I think... That's one of the reasons why, yes, the Coalition Avenir Quebec was always projected to win it, but it ended up winning big, I think, in part because the other parties' bases did not turn out, turn out in sizable enough numbers to hold even some of the seats that didn't originally appear like they were going to be on the table in this election. So let's move on from the Quebec Liberals and talk about the governing Coalition Avenir Quebec. It is the first time since 1956 that a party other than Liberals of the PQ have won consecutive elections. So that's how significant this election has been. Um, I'm curious, Sam, by all accounts, Premier Francois Legault was seen as running one the worst campaign out of the party leaders. He had to apologise twice. His immigration minister has all been sacked by, 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 by the Premier. Yet the polls barely move. I mean, Theresa May will be jealous, but any reasons why his why his support was so solid? I think it's a combination of the campaign he ran in terms of the policies he was he was talking about and the wider context of the race. Because let's not forget that within the last two years, Francois Legault's approval rating was very high. I mean, in in 2020, towards the back end of 2020, 2021, he was he had approval rating in the 60%. I mean, it's now down in the low 40s, high 30s. But at one point, he was receiving very high plaudits for his response to COVID-19 within the state of Quebec. And I think there is a legacy to that approval that has carried him into this election, because when he's been lined up against other leaders, Yes, his approval rating is quite low and he's been regarded as running a bad campaign, but lined up against the other potential premiers of Quebec, he's still the most popular. So I think that's important to acknowledge. And also his campaign, 
aside from some of the more controversial things that he was doing, he was pledging to cut income tax, give checks to families to combat high inflation and a freezing of immigration levels, coupled with a boosting of senior benefits. And we've talked many times on this podcast about if people feel like they're getting favourable economic pledges, they're more likely to vote for the party. So I think people were able to look past some of his campaign deficiencies and look at some of the things he was promising to do for people in this cost of living crisis, and then also looking at other parties available and thinking, well, actually, I might not hugely like Francois Legault as much as I did four years ago, but that is still the party for me. So I'm going to put my cross in their box. And I think that, for me, goes a long way in explaining why his approval rating was was gradually decreasing, but the support for the party stayed where it was. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's a good, good, uh, good, uh, good way of saying it. And as I said earlier, my my analysis is that the CAQ was successful in targeting the median voter, both in terms of it economically being centre right, but still maintaining a social conscience. And I think some of the policies that you described there perfectly describes the social conscious element of it. I have more evidence here of um, promising 600 more doctors and 5,500 more medical professionals, for example. In the environment, he promised a 37.5% cut in emissions by 2030, net zero by 2050. So it's clearly not some of, unlike the Federal Conservative Party, too far to the right. So he has positioned his party well in terms of attracting that median vote. And like you said, it's when he's been relatively popular over his tenure, and certainly compared to some of the other leaders, he certainly has performed well. But that means it's, let's take a look then at the deficiencies. We talked about the Liberals, we talked about the CAC. Let's talk about the Parti Québécois. For you, Sam, how do you think, was this election as bad for the Parti Québécois as expected? Because it the numbers does suggest it was terrible and Eastern Quebec, they performed particularly poorly before. But at least they managed mm. to get a leader elected, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it. I think... It wasn't necessarily as bad as it could have been for the Parti Québécois, but that's not saying that this isn't, I think, potentially terminal for the party at the state level because their traditional base, which is hardline pro-sovereignty francophones, I think is just being completely eroded by other parties who who are... peddling the same thing but potentially a bit more diluted and more catch-all so i think the coalition avenue quebec has completely eroded the moderate or casual sovereignty supporting conservatives which the party quebecois used to rely on and then some of the more hardline sovereignists who may have had so less socially conservative views and voted for the party quebecois are now siding with Quebec Solidaire, which are the exciting new kids on the block in terms of the pro-sovereignty realm in Quebec. So for them to finish this election on, yes, they got 14% of the votes, that's a reasonably respectable amount of the votes in the context of this election, but their seat count is really low. And to be honest, if I look across the board, I don't really know where Parti Quebecois' um, targets could be for the next election unless the Coalition Avenue Quebec falls apart, which at least in this moment right now, it doesn't feel like that's going to happen. So I think the Parti Quebecois has just been squeezed 
on all sides to the point that if their traditional voters were to rank their preferences, other parties are offering that in in spade loads, whereas you're lukewarm offering everything. So, no, and I, th- I think that makes sense. And I think the one question I have in my mind is, how, what is driving the CAQ support? Because if it's policy, i.e. the fact that Francophones are sick and tired of the sovereignty debate, having had two referendums in a not-so-decent past in 1980s and 1990s, and just genuinely want to move on, I think that's terminal for the party that's built its platform around being pro-sovereignty. However, the one question that I have is that since its party's formation, the coalition Avenue Quebec has only been led by Francois Legault. The question is, is that vote tied up in the personality of Francois Legault rather than the politics of it? If it's only tied in the personality, there's rumours that he's not going to serve out a full second year term. If he doesn't, I think it'll be really interesting to see how the Francophone behaves in the next election. And I think that would tell you the clue mm. about Parti Quebecois' future survival. Mm. But the other issue as well is that Paul Saint-Pierre Plomondeau, the leader, leader of PQ, he is the hardcore sovereignist. Now, he has won his seat, I suspect, largely because he is the leader, so he had a high profile during the debates and had a good performance. I just wonder, now that the spotlight will be shone more firmly in a post-legal future, is whether that we will truly find out whether it's politics or whether it's policy mm. or personality that has driven the PQ's decline. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And from my perspective, I think at the moment, it seems to be a combination of the two because Coalition Avenue Quebec have managed to carve out a quite intelligent lane, which is delivering um, things that could please people who are very pro-sovereignty by heavy devolution that is moving more towards um, entrenching the French language and requiring um, people moving into Quebec to, to learn French in order to communicate with local authorities. So I think people therefore feel that they could get the best of both worlds, which is we don't have to go through a divisive sovereignty argument, which in recent history, it's looked like we're never going to win. But if we can deliver on heavy devolution whilst also lining up with the rest of Canada on um, social and economic policy, then Coalition Avenue Quebec have created a world in which both of those things can be true. Whereas Parti Quebecois, in its history, has lent more towards one side than the other. And crucially as well, is that their geographical strongholds have almost disappeared. And that's dangerous, isn't it, Sam? It's when your geographic strongholds that you always rely on, even in bad years, just disseminates completely. I mean, for the Parti Quebecois, we talked about liberals, at least they retained Montreal. But for the Parti Quebecois, in eastern Quebec, it was a bloodbath to the CAQ. They lost so many seats there. Duplessis, since 1976, they've held that seat. In fact, um, in, the CAQ has made history by electing the first Indigenous woman to the, to the National Assembly in Catherine champagne jordan In Romanski, since 1994, it has um, it lost that seat as well. In fact, in the last election in 2018, the PQ was it's one of the few writings in which the PQ saw an increase in its vote. So François Legault did put a lot of effort in trying to take seats in the Gatsby region. And it clearly seems to me, Sam, that it's paid off, hasn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's just one of the many examples in this election where the CAQ has broadened its its geographic voter appeal. And that's something that I think is going to benefit it going into 
the next election in four years' time because it'll be defending territory in all kinds of different um, parts of Quebec and proving that it can be successful in them as well. And finally, let's talk about Quebec Solidaire. Its vote share fell for the first time, but their seat count went slightly up. How will Gabriel Nodou-Brubois view this view this result? I think in the context of this election, the Quebec Solidaire's performance is relatively good because they gained a seat and they only lost just under 1% of the vote, which in an election where the CAC was so dominant and there was also the surging Conservatives taking a lot of the opposition vote as well, I think is a relatively good performance. And I think they have proven that there is a lane there for a left-wing sovereigntist party which could attract a sizable number of votes because they position themselves well to challenge on climate change, on social policy, on um, the welfare state, as well as being um, explicitly francophone as well. Um, And I think there is a sizable vote share available to them in Quebec and in this election where the CAC were just so dominant, they were able to stay relatively stationary. And that, I think, is is bizarrely positive in the context of this election as well. And I think, for me, the Quebec Solidaire looked like a party here to stay and grow rather than what some of the other opposition parties look like, which are parties on the verge of fading out of existence completely. Well, yes, I think compared to the context of the Parti Québécois, I think it's more serious questions to answer. But Sam, I might actually take a slightly different view. I think this, is a, this election is a bit disappointing for the Quebec Solidaire itself, because at one point, they talked about being the second largest party in the National Assembly, and they fell far short of that goal. Um, and they also, for the first time, lost the seat in Royen Noranda Temescui, and I do apologise if I butchered the riding's pronunciation, to the CAQ itself. And I think what it is finding is that the Parti Québécois in this election was able to somewhat go under the radar as somewhat being slightly irrelevant. But this time around, the spotlight was firmly shone on Quebec Solidaire. In particular, you know, some of its policy proposals was often ridiculed by Francois Legault and being the orange tax. And so I see this as somewhat of a, at the moment, a ceiling on their support, because now that they are seen as a much more prominent force, more people are paying attention to it, the media is airing more of it, and they need to get better at the politics of how to handle some of its policy proposals in order to move forward. And I think that's a lesson for Quebec Solidaire itself, is that it's improved its communication, and it can't just rely on just being the submarine and you know kind of being ignored in a way. It has to now fend off attacks from other parties. And I think in this election, Gabriel Nodoa Dubois is not as is seen as much more polarizing as a figure. He's been around in Quebec politics for over 10 years. So for a long time, avid watchers of Quebec politics, they have known him. And we should note that Quebecers are particularly keen on their provincial elections compared to, let's say, Ontario. In Ontario, we saw turnout less than 50%. The Quebec turnout is 67%. So they really do care about the provincial politics. So I think this is the growing up of Quebec Solidaire, and it now presents a challenge if he wants to make further gains and inroads in the years in the elections to come. Hmm. I mean, it's certainly a party that I think have positioned itself to be a major talking point in the next term because 
you have Parti Quebecois with three seats. They're not going to be a feature of the National Assembly at all. The no Conservatives... official party status. Exactly. Not even, not even an official party. You have the Conservatives outside of Parliament altogether. And you have the Liberals who are going to have to be doing quite a significant amount of soul-searching despite being a larger parliamentary party. But Quebec Solidaire, in the grand scheme of things, are just beginning to emerge as a political party. And I think they have some interesting things to say in terms of um, policies and issues that could become quite dominant within the next five to ten years. So it'll certainly be interesting to watch how the dynamic of Quebec politics is shaped around those voices, the three voices that will be the most dominant, which are Coalition Avenue Quebec, the majority government, the Liberals and Quebec Solidaire, not for the first time really in Quebec history, Parti Quebecois. Okay, and welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. So we'll be moving across the Atlantic Ocean to cover the results in Latvia, where the election last weekend with 100 seats to the SEMA, so therefore you need 51 seats to the majority, saw a victory for the incumbent Prime Minister's new unity party, with Kristana Karens' party securing 26 seats is up 18, so it moves from the smallest party in the last parliament to the biggest party in the last parliament, so I'm not quite surprised there. The unions and greens and farmers will secure 16 seats, which is up 5. The united list has entered the parliament for the first time with 15 seats. The National Alliance, which is an old junior coalition partner in the last government, will have 13 seats, no change on that there. For stability, enters Parliament with 11 seats. So there's Latvia first with 9 seats and the Progressives with 10 seats entering Parliament. So with four new parties entering Parliament for the first time, the question is, which parties fell below the 5% threshold that they needed to enter? So it, it, the answer is Development 4, the Union for Latvia, the Conservatives, which for all, at least some point in the previous term was part of the government, and Harmony, which was actually the largest vote get in the previous election. So quite a lot of churn in terms of which parties went in, went out. So quite a lot of discussion there. We should note that the current government, because of the loss of three coalition partners, has lost the majority, only 39 seats. It needs 11 seats for a majority government. But I, I think we can agree, Sam, that uh, I think Karen's will likely remain prime minister, isn't it? So any wider reactions to the results? Yeah, I mean, the, the headline result is not hugely surprising because it was projected that um, the Prime Minister's party, New Unity, would win this election and that some of his coalition partners would struggle. But my reaction to the results more generally is is politically quite surprising because you had three of the seven parties in the legislature currently got double digits of the vote and not one polled more than 20%. So you have to ask, is this fragmentation of the political party system or is it outright disintegration? Because for no party to cross 20% and only three parties to get more than 10%, I think is immensely surprising. You have four of the seven parties in the SIMA being new parties and the four best performing parties from the last election have a combined total of zero seats in the current parliament and three of the five incumbent coalition partners will be sitting outside of parliament entirely. Plus, and this I think is one of the most startling stats, 
is that almost a quarter of the votes cast were for a party that is not represented in the legislature, which in terms of how these political systems are designed, why the thresholds exist as they are, I think is quite startling for a quarter of the vote to opt for parties that got less than 5%. So all in all, my reaction to the headline result, not a surprise. My reaction to everything going on around it from a from a political science perspective is just amazement, really. And Sam, we were talking the aftermath of the Latvia election as development for, you know, as the vote count went up and down and up and down, it flirted with that 5% threshold a number of times before ultimately coming agonizingly, falling agonizingly below it. So, and it would have changed, I think, the calculus of what the government looks like. Because obviously with Development 4 coming to the parliament, that was probably a likely coalition partner for the Prime Minister, Karen is Karen. Speaking of the Prime Minister, um, we had a little chat about this, and let's have a wider chat now on the podcast. What will this election look like in terms of which parties do you think will be in the next government? I think we can fairly say New Unity will be leading it. National Alliance will, pro- will probably be in, as it was previously in government. but. Who do you think it would then turn to next? Yeah, well, I know that um, Karen's has signalled with um, meetings beginning earlier this week, but continuing into next week, that his preference would be for a government that is the th- the coalition partners that remain, i.e. The, the National Alliance and his own party, New Unity, going with both the United List, who now have 15 seats, and the Progressives, who have 10, which would take the government total up to 64 seats, which would be would be a four-party government um, and quite a large majority of, of this broad coalition. I think the issue there is that the Progressives presented themselves in this election as significantly more um, left-wing and progressive, the clue is in the title, than some of the other partners in government, and also, importantly, the outgoing government partners from the previous government, because the progressives and the conservatives are not even in the same ballpark in terms of the the policies they would want to enact in government. So I think the difficulty there is if this government were to look like that, which is Karen's preference, it would be a significant shift from the government of the last four years in terms of its ideological um, composition and its policy output. So it would feel like a very different government. So Karens would have to go into this negotiation looking for a shift in the kind of government he wants to lead versus the government he led before, which is hardly a surprise because, as you said, his party was the smallest party in the government last time and now is the largest. So it does have more ideological clout if it wants to shift its policy output. But I think that is a crucial asterisk here is that it would require a, a change in tone. I think the the positive thing for the for the new Unity Party and Karen's himself is that the United List do feel like a natural ally of the new Unity and um, the National Alliance together, because the new Unity Party formed in 2018 as a union between the former Conservative Union, the, un, the former Conservative Unity Party and some regional parties. And the United List is a collection of localist parties, the Green Party, um, 
and does feel like it fits in that umbrella quite nicely. Almost by default, they could get this government to 54 seats with the added bonus of the extra 10 if they can get the progressives on board. My gut says the progressives probably will choose not to join the government, but I think there is a possibility that they do manage to redefine what the government wants to be and gets all four of those parties on board. What do you think? Well, crucially, the National Alliance and the United List both do not want the progressives to be in that government itself. So I think it could prove to be very tricky. I can see, um, because as as we said earlier, both the National Alliance and the United List want a right-to-centre coalition because for them, they will get more seats around the cabinet table. They can share the spoils. And crucially as well is that they get probably more policy clout within the coalition itself. Whereas from Karen's point of view, you can sort of understand why you want to bring the progressive in because the progressives will sit as a pro-European centre-left option in Latvia, which is aim something that Latvian parliament would never have, but at least Karen's potentially very exposed on the left flag. Whereas if you brought them into government, you would have to share in some of the potentially unpopular decisions that it could, the government has to take. And don't forget, he led a term which we saw the complete disintegration of who owns the state, which you've so eloquently described in our preview podcast. Who's not to say that the United List, who has entered parliament for the first time, might not suffer a similar fate in terms of losing its bulk of his MP. So wouldn't you want some insurance from that point of view as well? I can totally understand that. No, I think, and I think that's exactly why Karen's preference from the beginning is to negotiate with both of them. Because also the United List is a collection of quite a diverse range of parties in terms of um, geographic locations from across Latvia. So whilst it did stand in this election as a united group, I don't think you could necessarily guarantee that they would vote as a collective when it comes to um, party whipping that we're familiar with here in the UK or um, collective positions on, on certain policies. I think they stood together for the purposes of the election, but whether that will continue in the aftermath, I don't think can be guaranteed. And I think that's why Karens would like, if he can, the insurance of, of the progressives. And now, don't forget, he has clout now. He is leading the biggest party and was arguably the biggest winner on election day. And it is quite a milestone for him because he's the first prime minister in Latvia's democratic history to serve a full term. Not a lot, but it's still quite significant indeed. And he's on track if he completes serving by the end of 2023, as I mentioned in the preview podcast, to become Latvia's longest serving democratically elected prime minister. So history is on the line for Karens, and uh, it seems like his new unity being a strong position, I think that this next government, which I actually don't, which I agree with you, will only be three parties rather than four. I think the amount of wrangling he has to do will potentially be less than the outgoing Mm. government. And I wonder if United List doesn't survive, like some of the other newly joined parties, whether the progressives later on could be called up as Mm. a solution or potentially the remnants could be enough because it is 11 seats short, so they will need the bulk of the united list of whatever remnants of it to remain supporting. And if you judge by who owns the state and how many seats it was left with, I don't think Mm. you can judge, you can govern with just the remnants. So it could be the progressives is that even though they are not in government now, but towards the end of the term, not all hope is lost, isn't it? Yeah, interesting thought experiment for you, Chern, because we talked in the preview podcast for Latvia through the 
quite turbulent period trying to form the government that is just leaving office. Do you think there is a world in which um, Artas Christians Karins doesn't remain prime minister? Possibly. I mean, you can't rule these things out. I mean, it will be, need to be a grand coalition. You need the unions of Greens and Farmers, United List, Latvia in first place, and for stability. Which, again, you know, your force stability is the remnants of the Russian-speaking, um, probably the main voice of the Russian-speaking population. And we know right now there's quite a lot of differences between the, Lat the majority Latvian-speaking population and the Russian minority popul po population in terms of how it views the war in Ukraine. And as well, you come to the other problem of the leader of the Unions of Greens and Farmers, which is Alvarez Limbers, and I do apologize if I mispronounced that, he has been sanctioned by the United States and sanctioned for five years for corruption. And several other parties, such as the United States, have already vowed not to work with him. So it require quite a lot of people walking back their words to form a non-new unity government. And we saw see, Sam, in so many elections that we have covered across many different countries, that voters do not take too kindly of parties that break a signature election promise, does it? No, and I mean, the only reason I ask that question is just to see if if there was a world i don't necessarily think there is because i think it would be difficult for any other person than karen's to to put together one a majority numerically and two one that seems even remotely legitimate because the new unity party won this election um by getting the most votes by quite a, a margin and as i said at the start any other party really barely polled 10% and in many cases polled less than 10%. So it would feel difficult to justify um, any other party being involved. And yes, Karins was the leader of the smallest party back in 2018, but the government itself contained three of the four best performing parties in that election. So that, that's where it came from. But don't forget, crucially, is that New Unity gained a lot of seats in this election. So it's coming into this election with momentum. And I don't think you cannot deny that momentum, right, particularly at the start of the prime ministership. Well, it, all the momentum is in New Unity. It seemed that the balloon sunk for any other, and for even more dramatic words can be used, to describe Harmony, who I would argue was the biggest loser in the election night. I mean, it, it polled between 20-28% in all the elections, since there were four elections since 2010 to up to this election, it's come first in every election since 2011. It now has 4% of the vote and zero seats. I mean, this is a, in terms of falls on grace, Sam, until this trust goes to the polls, this one's one of the more dramatic ones, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just a harmony problem, really, because there wasn't a single pro-Russian minority party that gained seats in this election. And the only close one to that is For Stability, who is the only openly Eurosceptic party to gain seats in this election. So it wasn't just a problem for Harmony as a, as a party. I think it was a problem for their entire um, voter base. And I don't think... I, I've not been able to establish when looking at these results whether it's a case of the Russian-speaking minority choosing not to participate in this election in, in as big a numbers as before, or whether it's that because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, their, their passion in supporting pro-Russian causes is slightly reduced on what it has been historically in Latvia, because we have seen in opinion polling that 
Latvia is much in much more of a position now in condemning Russian activity than it was previously. And we saw a much harsher tone taken by Karins as prime minister against um, against the Russian speaking population and potential Russian migrants as well. So I wonder whether it's a combination of the Russian speaking minority choosing not to participate as fully, but also moving on from um, a Russian speaking, Latvian speaking divide in the election to them actually choosing to vote for parties that traditionally represented the Latvian speaking population because of their ideological positions. I don't know what you think, Chern. I think I think the problem is that for the for the Russian speaking population and the parties that seek to represent it, is that because they are minorities, that they need their vote to be A, a significantly high turnout, but B, not be split in so many ways, because you had 4% with harmony, you had, yes, as we said, forced stability getting over the line, but you also then had the Russian, the Latvian Russian Union. So unfortunately, the most of the Russian minority population vote went to two parties, which both simultaneously failed to go come across a 5% threshold. And as a result, they were punished, In if you just look at the seats. So, but then again, for stability's policy position on Russia is so different from that of the Latvian Russia Union. I was a little bit surprised that the Latvian Russia Union failed to get across the 5% threshold. Because this was... I thought that one of the backlash that we could see to the toppling of the Soviet monuments and the genuinely hardline approach by Prime Minister Karens is that you could see a surge of support for the most overtly pro-Russian party, the Latvian-Russian Union. So to me, I found it interesting that potentially maybe many ethnic Russians themselves do not wish to be associated with something Putin is warmongering. Suddenly, I suspect since a lot of these their relatives were probably in the last couple of days leading up to the election, potentially be involved in the past of mobilization. Mm. So they wanted some distance from that. So mm. I think the Russian-speaking vote is a bit hard to read because two of the big parties fell below the 5% threshold and they had such differing positions. And for a minority party that needed A, its vote to turn out, and B, to be concentrated in one party meant that its influence was diluted. Mm. I mean, it, I think it's a really interesting country given the global context right now because it's the first time really that we've seen an election in a country with a sizable Russian minority population who are geographically very close to the conflict. And I wonder if what we've seen in this situation is they they have equal concerns, the Latvian-speaking population, over the potential of their home country, which in this case is Latvia, being also invaded by the place that they originally hailed from. So I wonder if in this case they have um, lumped more in with the majority interests that they typically voted against out of potential, out of um, concern for their personal welfare in, in Latvia, but also out of concern of how it would look if they were voting for pro-Russian minority parties in this context. I don't know. I think I think it's a tricky thing to, to talk about. And it's also, as I said, it's the first time we've seen an election like this. I mean, other countries which could potentially be interesting in this context is um, Finland, is uh, Moldova, um, and also the other um, Balkan countries, Lithuania and Estonia as well. Well, if we just look at the region of Latgal, which is the which is the most which is the region with the most Russian speakers, 
for stability won just under 20% of the vote there. So it does suggest that it does appear that a lot of them went to vote to force stability, which is, I think, a populist force, a new force for Russian speakers. And crucially, unlike Harmony, which went into this election losing a lot of high-profile figures, dithering on major policy points, it struggled for two elections, how to respond to the Crimean War. I think that this is a new a new party could potentially capture this base. But very much, I think, it's a lot of minefields ahead for a pro-Russia party in this current context, particularly this election coming up in a year rather than, let's say, four years down the line. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting space and things to watch. And, you know, New Unity's vote is very clearly in the regions of Riga and Vatsimi, which is in the which is um, which is the region surrounding Riga. So and Riga is, of course, the capital city. They got over 20% of the vote there. So it does suggest that there is some geographic differences in between the votes um, between the Latvian-speaking population and the Russian-speaking population. But potentially, the the what the Russian voters think is a little bit more hard to read, given that its vote kind of sprayed a little bit all over the place, if you look at the parties in particular that didn't make it under the threshold. Finally, Sam... I just wanted to ask, Idrik, before we look at wider context in terms of these two elections and any lessons you could draw from both Quebec and Latvia, is for Karen's himself, he must be feeling pretty smug, isn't it? So let's round back to the discussion of the Prime Minister. What was the keys to new unity success? Was it purely the positioning on the Russia-Ukraine war? What other factors could be in the last four years that could explain new unity's remarkable success? In other words, for it. I think one thing is the fact that he was the prime minister. He's been seen as a relatively successful and popular prime minister. And I think that helped his party's fortunes going into this election. And also because one of the key issues in this election was security and foreign policy. And Carent has been very high profile in working with both the European Union on criticizing Russia and also being explicitly pro-Ukraine in his um, domestic policies as well. I hinted at some of them earlier to do with um, uh, migration and um, language as well because they're trying to um, encourage children to learn Latvian at school to try and further integrate the, the Russian minority into the Latvian community. And I think in the context of the, I, I don't think you can view Karen's victory outside of the context of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, because I think Karen's as a figure has been hugely benefited by the role he has been playing in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's not to say that I think he relies on this conflict to be successful because he's been successful in his own right. But this context has secured his position and has also made him the headline act in one of the um, key discussions in this election. Indeed. So I I think that's a very good summary there. And Sam, let's round up by your final thoughts on both Quebec and Latvia. Anything that part... Because these are two elections which I think the headline results to me were not particularly surprising. But underneath, I think it tells a lot of very interesting stories, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stories about the future of the party systems in both of these environments. Because as we talked about in Quebec, potentially we're seeing um, a a realignment of particularly the pro-sovereignty vote. And in Latvia, we're seeing 
well, a, a fundamental realignment of the party system yet again, which seems to be a, a four yearly experience. But the other thing that I think does bring both of these under the same banner is both of them have become a very um, unrepresentative parliament because of the electoral system we had in those areas. So in Quebec, first past the post meant that Coalition Avenue Quebec with 42% of the vote got over 70% of the seats. And in Latvia, because of their proportional system with a threshold of 5% and how fragmented the party system is, you have 25% of the vote not represented in parliament at all. So I think they're both interesting case studies on how how significant an impact electoral systems can have on the eventual outcome of the election. Because Coalition Avenue Quebec was the clear victors in Quebec, but that didn't mean to say that if the electoral system was different, they would have been quite as dominant as they seemed on the surface. And then in the Latvia situation, because of the threshold, we're looking at a very different government composition than happened in the last election that didn't necessarily, that isn't necessarily representative of what the Latvian population sought in this election necessarily. So I think they're both very interesting from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be, I mean, the Quebec example is even worse if you look at the opposition parties. I mean, second in terms of seats, but fourth in terms of share of the vote. And parties that can get 1% more of that vote will get half as many seats. Parties that got 0.2% that are Liberals got uh, one-seventh of the seats. And a party that finished less than 2% got no seats compared to the Liberals. It's just a complete scrambling of the electoral math. And Latvia, as you said earlier, is another country in which, ironically, in a proportional system, that threshold has proven to be problematic in terms of trying to ensure some level of proportionality. I think my final comment also goes by electoral reform as well, because ironically, the case for the strongest electoral reform, which is now when the results are weird, is probably the least likely time in which electoral reform is likely to take place. Because why would the Coalition Avenue Quebec change a system that it has benefited so greatly from? Why would New Unity change a system in which it has so greatly before? Okay, in this case, it was more touch and go, but I just don't see that happening. So ironically, when the best case for electoral reform is made, is ironically when it's less likely to happen. And the key to ramp home is that we saw a lot of talk in the Canadian press about first past the post. But even now we see in a proportional system, as we see, Sam, is that there can be irregularities to the vote based on how fragmented it is. And that, I think, has often been the story that's not been told in many politics itself. I will note as well that in an era as well, where we talked a lot in recent months about changes of government, Georgia Maloney in Italy, you know, Magdalena Anderson losing her job very likely to Ulf Christensen, we see two incumbents here being re-elected. So it is a bright spot, you would say, but it is largely due to because significant events in the case of Quebec is Francois Legault and um, his COVID record and his record over the last four years in general, and Latvian Prime Minister largely the, uh, would largely do the war. The personal popularity of the leader is so often important to determining a leader's fate. And when the leader is popular, the chances of the party being reelected is significantly better. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. 
But I think one fi final closing comment, Chern, is that at least in both Quebec and Latvia, the numbers are there to form a government, whereas one of our old favourites, Bulgaria, which also held an election last weekend, doesn't look to have the same fortunate circumstances. But if anything changes, we will be updating you on our social media pages, so do keep an eye on that. Yes, we can't forget about Bulgaria. We've been cracking jokes about it. So fifth time in, two, in just under two years, when we expect the next election to be, because the numbers don't seem there. So when do you think we'll next see another Bulgarian election being called, Sam? Spring 2023. Right, I think so too. And whilst as we eagerly await the fifth Bulgarian election we've had to look at for over the last two years, well, now that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we're reviewing elections in both Lower Saxony and Germany and previewing the upcoming snap election in Denmark, which promises to be absolutely tight and a mouth-watering contest to come. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ballot underscore Talk. And please do leave us a rating or reviews or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>